Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. GameStop, game on. Stocks rise pre-market as trading app Robinhood softens its buying ban. Robinhood rumbled, lawmakers from the left and right demanding answers. An Astra approval, EU vaccine approval pending, but the row over supplies remains. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We've made it to Friday. Few. It's also the last trading day of January. And what a month it's been with markets jolted by the Reddit retail trading revolution that's forcing us all, I think, in some way to question the integrity of the financial system. Small traders gaming with the investment elite say their fears of a rigged system are being realized by trading curbs and restrictions on where they can discuss markets. Just to make it clear, Robinhood, the trading app, yesterday decided to impose a buying limit on stocks like GameStop, effectively creating artificial selling pressure because people panicked and inadvertently, therefore, pushing stock prices in a direction that seemingly helps some of those hedge funds that had sold these stocks originally. Now, Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev chatted with uh, my colleague Chris Cuomo last night, and he rejected the allegation that he was in some way out to protect the big guys with those trading curbs. I know that there's rumors around that, um, you know, we were directed by market makers or other market participants to do this. And I want to be 100 percent clear. This decision was not made on the direction of any market maker or uh, other market participants. Now, should limits be perhaps put in place on stocks that are highly volatile and that people may be buying without actually having the money in their trading accounts to buy? Probably. But remember, this happens a lot, if nothing like this. However, the communication needs to be better and the exchanges, the stock market exchanges and regulators need to be discussing cooling off periods to control the kind of freeding frenzy that we've seen in these stocks. Robinhood was also clearly caught off guard here by this too, I think, buffeted by the very, very revolution that it's helped spawn. It's now raised over a billion dollars in new funding to shore up its cash position. The end result? Well, GameStop ended lower yesterday, but as I've already mentioned, it's now up more than 80% pre-market. GameStop, game on. But there's a bigger question here to answer about what's driving this. You know, smaller investors believe they've long missed out on the rewards others have accrued and that in some way this is a kind of payback. We've seen the refashioned stop the steal mantra taken from the U.S. election. And just like Occupy Wall Street 10 years ago, they found a way now to make their voices heard. Their anger, I fear, in some way summed up by this Bernie Sanders tweet last night. The business model of Wall Street is fraud. Now, that's Bernie Sanders. But Wall Street needs to be perhaps more transparent and lawmakers smarter about addressing some of these concerns and the regulatory risks posed or risk losing the trust of a new generation of investors. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, got to remember, and great to have you with us, that Robin Hood is in its infancy too. I look at the handling of that interview, the handling and the mess they made of communicating what they were trying to do yesterday. And, you know, it's all feeding into this lack of trust that we've got going on here in the financial system. 
there were a couple of days on big market days in the past year or so when the Robinhood platform uh, couldn't handle all the trades. Do you remember that? There were a couple of times when the small investor missed out on big moves uh, because uh, the, the platform was overwhelmed. So you're right. It has democratized Wall Street. It, Robinhood is what caused Schwab and TD Ameritrade and all these other f- uh, firms to drop their, their 799 or 1099 brokerage fees, right? So they really are the ones who open the door for anybody to sit there uh, with a keyboard and a trading app and to be able uh, to trade here. It's so fascinating to me. This is like, you know, uh, populism, you know, without the pitchfork, but with a trading app and a keyboard. It really is. And, and there's this feeling that anybody can can go in there and, and buy stocks. My big question at this point is where does it go from here? The beginning of the year, GameStop shares were, what, 17 or $19 a share. They're 350 now. I mean, that's just a remarkable rise, not in line with the fundamentals of the company. So where does this go from here in terms of regulation, in terms of the soul searching about what is fair and not fair on Wall Street. There's also a side discussion here about just naked shorting, uh, just the the practice of shorting. Why is it okay for sophisticated investors? Why is that when it's clearly not a hedge, when it is clearly on the bet of the demise of a company? There's a big debate going on uh, about that. You You saw Elon Musk tweet, you can't sell a house you don't own. You can't sell a car you don't own. Why are these guys selling stocks they don't own? It's a scam. It's so true. And, you know, if we try and grapple this back to the fundamentals, this is a company with debatable fundamentals. And there are reasons for those guys to think that the price of this stock should be lower. Should we be encouraging people to be buying this stock and pushing the price really high when we look at the underlying um, metrics of the company and go, that doesn't make sense. So there, there are so many questions to ask here. I guess what you and I and the expertise that we have can bring to this is, you know, advice for buyers at this moment, if you want to get in on the game. You know, when I, my, when I got into finance, my first mentor said to me, um, greedy pigs make great bacon. <laughs> know when to take profit and go party. And I just feel like if you're somebody who is investing in this because you want to make money and you can't actually afford to lose that money. This is an investing. This is an investing. This is speculation. And this is a get rich quick scheme. I mean, that's really what this is right now. It's a game. Maybe it's a moral game to to stick it to the man. And the man is Wall Street and the, you know, the the prop desks and the hedge funds and the high frequency traders. Uh, But but mostly this is being fueled by the elixir of a quick profit. And that's what a lot of people have been talking about on these sites. You know, there's also an old Wall Street phrase that we all learn early in our career is the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And that is true as well here. If any, if you don't have the money to lose, you should not be playing in this in this dangerous game here um, with these stocks. I mean, you you really shouldn't. This is um, this is just. I mean, this isn't even like an IPO, which I also caution against buying an IPO in the, in the first year, you know, because you're, you're the normal person is not getting an insider placement on that either. So just tread carefully here. Buyer beware. Yeah, I could agree more. And, and gravity. At least in history, gravity does kick in at some point. You know, Christian, we had um, the founder of Wall Street Bets, this forum on yesterday. And I said to him, look, bubbles pop and people get hurt and people yeah. lose money. And, you know, what he said to me, he said, um, uh, uh, bubbles are boomer mentality. And, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that when you look at the stock market over the last year, over the yeah. last 10 years, quite frankly, that you know, it can keep coming up and defying the fundamentals, particularly of the U.S. economy. And Christine, that that sentiment terrifies me.
Yeah, I mean, I, you, going back to what you said earlier about the trust of a new generation of, of investors, I think that's really important too. I mean, there's the trading is going to be different, right? I mean, the, there are. All of these people who, in some cases, aren't buying homes right now. I mean, it's not the homeownership rate that it used to be. There, there is disposable income in this young generation to be purchasing um, stocks. And do they trust Robinhood? Do they trust uh, Wall Street? Could they, m- you know, manipulate? You got to be very, very careful, kind of the words you use here around legal, you know, legal reasons. But could they move a stock around, you know, um, uh, just for fun or just for profit? Could it be like a, the old, you know, Long Island 1990s pump and dump schemes? But it's more mm. sophisticated and online. You know, that's scary too. How do you know that that's not what's happening uh, in some corners of the internet as well? And how do you know that the big players don't have <laughs> don't have a 20-year-old who is also on the Reddit boards and is somehow learning how to profit on, on what the uh, on what the little guy is doing? I mean, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a cynic. I'm a cynic, but that could happen too. There's so much good in that. There's so, there's so many important points in that. I mean, <laughs> hedge funds will have made money on the way up here too. Let's be clear. They weren't all short and they play both sides as yeah. well. And I love a new generation and a new wave of people coming into this. But this is not a game. No. And you can make money and you can lose money. And oh boy, do those moments really hurt. And they're humbling. Markets have a funny way of humbling people. And, you know, you see what these lawmakers do if it was the other way around and people were losing right. money in this situation and not were not winning. Hmm. Christine, great to chat to you. Have a good weekend. You do. The GameStop saga is bringing a rare moment of political unity in the United States. There are bipartisan calls to investigate the Robinhood trading app for restricting trading. How often do you see Ted Cruz fully agree with AOC? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. John Howard is in Washington, D.C. John, to be fair to AOC, she was not pleased with being in agreement with uh, Ted Cruz. And that played out on Twitter as well. But there are important questions, whoever you are, whether you're a regulator, a lawmaker here or someone in the markets about just what's going on here. Well, the one thing we know from lawmakers is they're not going to, in a moment like this, stand up and defend the hedge fund that's getting crushed by what's happening with GameStop. And so when the situation seems to be getting out of control, the price is getting way disconnected uh, from fundamentals. There's so much demand. Uh, When uh, uh, Robinhood began to restrict trades, people said, hey, wait a minute, Uh, who are you doing this for? Why are are you stopping this uh, uh, populist uh, trading uh, movement that's going on? I suspect that we won't see anything really happen in the Congress until, as you were just discussing with Christine, gravity reasserts itself, the price goes down and a whole bunch of those small investors who've been uh, thrilled by what's happened the last couple of days themselves get crushed. That's when you will get more uh, momentum in Congress for actually doing something. Yeah, absolutely. And um, these guys need to be asking what's driving this inequalities, anger, frustration, people feeling left out of society. And then we can go back and work out whether the market's rigged or not. There's huge questions about what's driving this, too. John, great to have you with us. Thank you. John Harwood there. All right. New developments in the coronavirus vaccines. Johnson and Johnson this time announcing its vaccine is 66 percent effective in preventing infection, but has a higher 85 percent effectiveness in stopping severe cases. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, I'm going to hand it over to you. What exactly did we hear from Johnson and Johnson? Tell us more. So, Julia, the bottom line of what we heard is that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is effective. However, it is not as effective 
effective as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So if we're wondering, well, what does this mean for me? What experts tell me is, look, if you can get a Pfizer or Moderna uh, vaccine, do so. But if you can't, because in many parts of the world, it's, it's you can't get it or it's hard to find, and J&J does become available to you at some point, take the J&J vaccine. It is good. And you could also lay, do that and still later get Pfizer or Moderna. So let's take a look specifically at what Johnson & Johnson found. So if you're looking at preventing moderate to severe cases of COVID-19, which is one of the goals of the vaccine, Johnson & Johnson was 66% effective. Moderna and Pfizer, however, those were each around 95% effective. That is a big difference. Now, let's look at what's even more important, the vaccine preventing severe cases of COVID-19, keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people out of the ICU, keeping them alive. Johnson & Johnson was 85% effective. That is really, really good. Moderna and Pfizer, however, were even better at 100% or nearly 100% effective. So again, the bottom line here is that the J&J vaccine is very good and it has certain advantages. This is based on one dose. Moderna and Pfizer are two doses placed, uh, done several weeks apart. That's a pain in the neck. One dose is much easier. Also, J&J has a much easier, much easier storage and handling requirements, makes it much easier to use. Julia? Is that why we're seeing such a difference? Or at least part of the reason? Um, so there's... Right. So there's a couple of reasons why we're seeing a difference. And yes, you are right. The single dose is one of the could be one of the reasons if it gave, you know, experts I've talked to said, look, there was a lot of pressure to make J&J a single dose because obviously it's way easier. But if we gave two doses that some experts think it will be just as good as Pfizer and Moderna. So that is one of the reasons it could be. Another reason is that um, J&J did a bulk of its or a part of its clinical trial in South Africa during the time when the excuse me, when the variant appeared and that made it less effective. So Pfizer and Moderna did not do trials in South Africa during the time when the variant was rearing its ugly head. So that definitely put J&J at a disadvantage. Oh, this is such a great point. Thank you so much for, uh, for explaining that, Elizabeth. And time to get a cup of tea. I know you've been incredibly busy this morning. So uh, thank you there for uh, coping. Mm. Thanks. Thank you. Right, we're also expecting a decision from the European Union in the coming hours over approval of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. Earlier, the EU made its contract with the drug maker public in an escalating fight over delays to vaccine deliveries. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, just getting sign off on this vaccine, quite frankly, is one thing. But I was amazed but not surprised when I saw the EU give this redacted um, agreement with AstraZeneca over supplies. Just everyone here trying to say, look, it's not my fault that these delays are happening and um, this is a terrible situation. Just to, I think, appease the population who are clearly desperate for a vaccine. I think that's right. I think it's a measure, really, Julia, the, um, the anger that's involved on both sides in this row, really an indication of how desperately countries and uh, institutions need this vaccine for their populations and a measure of how desperate Europe is to get vaccines to its people. Because remember that the shortages that we're seeing here in the European Union, Julia, are the result not of delays or the shortages that we've been announced in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We're waiting for that decision from the EMA, which has uh, been delayed by about an hour. Uh, it is because of shortages already. That's how desperately the European Union needed this new batch of vaccines. So beyond the question of that approval by the European Medicines Agency, then comes the question of shortages. And the EU has signaled uh, that it is really intent on getting to the bottom of this. Publishing that contract, as you said, Julia, heavily redacted, 
but still showing, and this is what the EU wants to show, that the agreement was that those 400 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine that it had purchased uh, were to come from four different sites, one here in Belgium, one in the Netherlands, two in the United Kingdom, and that therefore it should not uh, be penalised in terms of receiving those deliveries. We saw that inspection earlier this week at the Belgian site at the request of the EU to try and make sure that AstraZeneca's claim that the delays to the EU would be down to production uh, difficulties really was the case. Uh, so the EU clearly making it plain that it will get to the bottom of this and ensure, as EU official after EU official has repeated these last few days, that they will ensure uh, that big pharma groups deliver the vaccines that they've signed up for. Yeah, you can only deliver as many as you've manufactured though and this is the problem and everybody's desperate here it's a huge challenge um melissa very quickly what about possible export restrictions from the eu if they simply can't reach some kind of agreement well this is this is part of again their attitude of showing that they will not take this lying down the idea that they're going to publish later today their plan for restricting vaccine exports they want to make sure julia that vaccines that are exported from the European Union to countries like the United Kingdom, for instance, um, are not taking place when there are shortages in the EU. So we, we await the details of that. And as I say, the decision from the European Medicines Agency about this AstraZeneca vaccine that the European Union desperately needs, if it's going to reach that target, Julia, of 70% of its population vaccinated by the summer at the moment, we're at about 2%. Yeah, we will watch that. Melissa Bell, all eyes on those announcements later today. Great to have you with us. Right, so to come here on First Move, AOL co-founder Steve Case says it's time to reboot capitalism. He joins me with his playbook for doing just that. And the bar stools are flying over the Robinhood trading app. Dave Portnoy back with us to discuss the backlash. That's all next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are lower pre-market. Still a bit of concern out there that the big Wall Street players who've been game-stopped, can we call it that, by retail investors, could be forced to sell more into this uh, volatile market, an atmosphere that's pretty toxic, not only on Wall Street, but in Washington, where Congress is gearing up for the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, even as President Biden tries to win Republican support for his near $2 trillion emergency aid package. Wall Street counting on new aid amid new signs this week of global economic weakness. It's part of the reason why our next guest plans are so vital. AOL founder and startup investor Steve Case sees the pandemic recovery plan as an opportunity to reboot capitalism. He believes that the gains of the innovation economy can be spread by investing in startups outside of the coastal tech hubs. That's what he's been doing since 2014 with his Rise of the Rest seed fund. And now he's calling on the U.S. government to help do the same. His newly released Rise of the Rest ecosystem playbook for 2021 is a roadmap for creating a thriving startup scene even during a pandemic. Joining us now is Steve Case, chairman and CEO of Revolution, co-founder and former co-founder of AOL. Steve, fantastic to have you on the show with us. I read the entire playbook and it's pretty thick, but um, I would say it's worth a read if you're an investor or someone who's simply trying to help foster the ecosystem. Just explain why it's so important to get so much of the money that concentrates in just three key areas outside of it. Because the data is pretty compelling that new companies, startups, are the big job creators. It's not actually small business. It's not big business. It's new businesses. So if we're not backing 
startups everywhere. We're not creating jobs everywhere. And we'll have an even greater divide in terms of some people kind of part of the innovation economy doing really well, a lot of people feeling kind of left behind. And so just from a policy standpoint, support from an investor standpoint, kind of an arbitrage that, you know, the valuations maybe are a little high in Silicon Valley, but most parts of the country where the entrepreneurs struggle to raise uh, venture capital, the valuations tend to be be lower. So there's a lot of reasons to do this, but our hope is that we'll be able to level the playing field, create a more inclusive approach to innovation and entrepreneurship. It's also 21st century jobs. I mean, what we've seen throughout the pandemic is a, a shift and acceleration in, in digitization. A lot of people looking at some of the jobs that exist today and saying, you know, we were worried that these jobs wouldn't exist in two, three, four, five years time. And all that's actually been accelerated by what we've seen in the pandemic. So it's, it's jobs of the future that are being created by businesses and startups today, too, surely. Absolutely. And, and some of those industries of the future are going to build on the expertise of the past. In healthcare, for example, uh, the technology, the coding aspect of it, of course, that's important. But partnering with major hospitals, major health plans, really understanding how the healthcare system works, trying to figure out how to integrate your idea in terms of what nurses embrace and doctors embrace and hospitals will integrate and health plans will pay for it and governments will allow it. There's a broader uh, effort here in order to be successful in a sector like that, similarly in food and agriculture or financial services. Uh, so that expertise, that domain expertise and those major partnerships, many of the most important companies in those sectors, what I've called the third wave of the internet sectors, are in the middle of the country. Uh, so there is a real opportunity that wasn't there in the last 10 or 20 years when Silicon Valley dominated in part because it really was about software, it really was about apps on smartphones, things like Facebook and, and, and others. In the in the third wave of the internet, it kind of, when the internet kind of meets the real world, uh, the expertise that exists in the middle of the country and the major potential for partnerships and customers in the middle of the country should fuel this, but only if we create more thriving startup communities, rising cities all across the country. We, we create a boomerang of talent. A lot of people left in the last few decades to right. leave the middle of the country, go to the coast. How do you get them to return? And how do you get more capital flowing to those folks? Last year, 75% of venture capital went to just three states in the United States. We need to spread it all around the country. Oh, this is so key. 75% of the money concentrated in Massachusetts, New York and California. So just as a result of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people just moving out of some of these cities anyway. We've now got a wave of even some of the big tech companies saying, hey, we're leaving Silicon Valley. We're going to go to places like Dallas, um, Florida, perhaps. These places are, are just more... Uh, inclusive of fostering the innovation and provide an environment and ecosystem that's better for us. Steve, talk to me about the playbook. How do these areas outside of those three main states nurture, well, this foster, is a, This promote. is the third playbook we publish, and it's free, available. You go to the revolution.com site, you can download it, and it talks about what's happening in seven or eight different cities, Tulsa, Miami, Colorado, Ohio, lessons learned in terms of how they have, have, have really built rising startup communities. But you also touch on another important point, the it's not just about place, the 75% going to three states. It's also about people. Uh, it, last year, even though women represent 50% of the population in the United States, they got less than 10% of venture capital. Last year, even though black Americans are 13% of the population, they got less than 1% of venture capital. So if you look at the data, it kind of does matter where you live. It does matter what you look like. If you have an idea, you have access to the capital to start a company, scale a company, really pursue the American dream. And that's what we need to change. It's not just spreading the capital around. It's also being more inclusive, having a more diverse mix of, of entrepreneurs. That's going to be required if the United States is going to continue to remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation. It can't just be a few people in a few places. It has to be everybody everywhere. 
Steve, you, you put, make it a three-step process. Some of it's about the funding. Some of it's about the navigation. What supports out there, like the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Scheme? But there's another part of this which I really liked, which is founder support. And it's sort of trying to recognise the the sort of mental and emotional toll that people have gone through throughout the pandemic. And to your point about minorities, to women who don't get this money, just even going up and having a conversation about getting money from people is a tough one. How do you and how are you giving advice to people that perhaps want money, don't know how to ask properly, and those that are dealing with mental issues as a result of what we've been through? Well, it's been a tough year, obviously, in, yeah. in a lot of respects and a terrible year, really. But there is a little bit of a silver lining, I think, as it relates to the rise of rest and it ties in with what you mentioned earlier. There, there have been people that have decided to shelter in place somewhere else, move temporarily someplace else. Some of those people have decided to stay there, whether they be entrepreneurs or, or, or venture capitalists. I think that bodes well for these rising cities. But these cities have to welcome them and need to be much more collaborative, need to focus not just on the businesses that exist today, but the businesses that might be created uh, tomorrow. And, and, and everybody needs to lead. Of course, the entrepreneurs need to leave. The venture capitalists need to leave. The mayors and the governors need to lead. The larger Fortune 500 companies need to lead. The universities in those cities need to lead. If everybody steps up and says, this is a moment. We can create a more inclusive innovation economy. We can kind of spread capital to more people in more places. We can create more new companies that create more, more jobs. And they say, this is a moment. Let's seize it. And they work together collaboratively. I think people will be surprised what might be possible over the next decade. What you're talking about, and we keep going back to this idea of inequality and, and redressing that ties, I think, intrinsically to what we're seeing at this moment and this sort of refashioned stop the steel that's being used, tackling the, the financial elite. I mean, inequality in this country has never been worse. Steve, you've talked about solutions there that are almost top down from mayors, state governors, businesses within these states trying to do more. What about top down? What do you want to hear from, from President Biden and this new administration that they can do very quickly, whether it's with Congress or without? Well, President Biden did put a Build Back Better plan in place last summer when he was running for, for office. And a lot of it did deal with more inclusive innovation, and, and including some of the ideas around Rise of the Rest. And there is legislation that, of course, now they just need to deal with the COVID situation and stimulus related to that and immigration. There are a bunch of things that are, need to be dealt with kind of kind of first. I understand that. But shifting as quickly as they can to support legislation, for example, that Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar introduced uh, that would create more venture capital in going to more parts of the you know, the country. There are a lot of uh, bills that have been introduced in Congress in the last year that will, will help here. And so I hope the Biden administration really will make it a front and center issue in the in the coming months. I believe they will, because I think they recognize, and including the president himself, how important it is to make sure we are really creating a bright future for everybody, which requires creating jobs for everybody, because that's part of the reason people are angry that they kind of feel left behind is they kind of were left behind. And we have to change that in the next decade. And, and startups and venture capital and new companies are, are a key part of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. They've got to multitask because these are all critical problems at this moment in time. And it's all part of how we recover and recover stronger and better. Steve, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For talking about your work and thank you for what you're doing. Steve Case, Chairman and CEO of Revolution. Great to have you with us. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on the last trading day of the week, and it's another day when the broader market is down. 
and speculative stock values are up. The various stock names so popular with retail investors all on the rise after the Robinhood trading platform lifted its highly controversial restrictions on buying those stocks yesterday and about turn. Also soaring shares of speculative cryptocurrency Dogecoin up some 400 percent yesterday after Elon Musk tweeted out an apparent show of support. He played a cameo performance in GameStop, I believe, too. Now, reports say Robinhood is now restricting trading in crypto names due to, quote, extraordinary market conditions. That said, Bitcoin, the original anti-establishment financial product, currently up double digits, as you can see. And as the GameStop frenzy inspires many retail investors to shake up stock markets, the enthusiasm now spilling over even to China. Selena Wang joins us now with the latest. Selena, I was sort of thinking about this yesterday, actually. Highly, highly regulated market versus the United States, or at least in comparison. But then, what, there's 180 million individual investors in China? Now that's power. What can you tell us? Julia, that's right. Retail investors in China do have major influence over the markets. There are some 177 retail investors. That's 99% of the investor base in China. And the investors in China are no stranger to frenzied trading and market volatility. And what we're seeing right now is Chinese social users calling on each other to band together, copy their American counterparts, and push up the stock prices of struggling companies. GameStop has really inspired this outcry we're seeing among these small investors over what they see as the exploitation of the market by these big institutional investors. For instance, on Weibo, China's Twitter-like platform, one user wrote, quote, market makers are trembling in front of retail investors who group together. It will soon be China's turn. Mom and pop investors will also refer to themselves as, quote, leaks, which is a common vegetable in China. One Weibo user said leaks from all over the world should all unite, calling the GameStop saga awesome. And what this really shows, Julia, is that this GameStop sentiment, what's behind it, is really global. It really just shows what's possible with the democratization of access to the financial markets and the power of the internet to upend yet another established institution. But Julia, unclear at this point if an amateur investor revolution is possible in mainland China at this point. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? There is this global feeling that the market is exploited by institutions, by hedge funds. And at least up until this point, these small investors simply haven't had a look in. Selena, what we've seen in the past is the regulators are far quicker to act in China, for better or worse, certainly versus, again, the United States. What is the likelihood that they step in here and go, um, we're going to protect whatever against whatever the activity is, because obviously the rules around short selling, for example, in in China, far more stringent than they are in the US, US too. Right, exactly. I was just going to start out with that and say China mainland markets, very different from New York. Short selling is highly regulated. It is extremely rare. And we have also seen the Chinese government intervene in the markets. It is known to do that. For instance, there is this national team in China, which is a collection nicknamed the national team, a collection of state bodies that the government will lean on in times of extreme market volatility. We also, as you referenced, see the government swiftly crack down on areas that they see as a risk to financial instability. What they've done with Bitcoin and peer-to-peer lending are just a few examples of that. And if we look at the possibility of something specific like GameStop, GameStop being replicated in China, 
Experts say that it theoretically is possible, especially with some of these smaller cap stocks, but the risk is extremely high. An attempt to organize big market swings, those people attempting to do that face the risk of arrest should the government catch wind of what they're doing. Julia? Wow. Imagine if lawmakers tried that in this country. Good gracious. Um, Yes, says everything. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. All right, after the break, Robinhood robbing the opportunity to invest. Hmm, Dave Portnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, isn't happy. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Western nations have taken the lead in buying up vaccine doses, leaving few options to fight the virus in other parts of the world. CNN's Ivan Watson shows us what's it like on the front lines in some of those areas. Thank you so much. In Western countries, the first coronavirus vaccines arrived with great fanfare, generating excitement and hope. But in most of the world's poorer countries, like Pakistan, vaccine distribution hasn't even begun. This hospital in Karachi is so full, there aren't enough beds for all the COVID-19 patients. We are full. We have patients waiting. We have families who are suffering. We have patients at home, sick patients at home, patients who are on oxygen, who just don't have space in hospitals. Dr. Nashwa Ahmed says she's discouraged at the lack of available vaccines. The vaccine is not here in this country for the foreseeable future. That means our healthcare workers still have to continue to do their jobs, endless hours without the protection of the vaccine. It's very difficult. Help is on the way. The COVAX facility is a global initiative established after the start of the pandemic. It has the ambitious goal of distributing some 2 billion doses of vaccine by the end of 2021. This is an unprecedented effort. Um, We have never rolled out um, this number of vaccines in this short time. Most of the doses are to be given to the world's 92 poorest countries for free. The COVAX facility is really built around fair and equitable access so that no country and no person who needs the vaccine is left behind regardless of their economic status. COVAX is a partnership of several international health organizations. It will distribute vaccines through UNICEF, which has considerable experience leading vaccination campaigns against other diseases in the developing world. But COVAX distribution isn't expected to start until February, in part due to the long wait for the World Health Organization to approve vaccines for emergency use. Countries are looking at COVAX and don't see yet vaccines arriving, while they see some countries are making bilateral deals, and that creates kind of a panic. Nice and relaxed. Some wealthier countries have been scooping up limited supplies of COVID vaccine for themselves. Vaccine nationalism is the evil twin of, of COVAX. A lot of the countries that signed up for COVAX, the high-income countries in particular, um, hedged their bets by putting in pre-orders for uh, COVID-19 vaccines. The head of the WHO denounces this practice. I need to be blunt. The world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure. And the price of this failure will be paid 
with lives and livelihoods in the world's poorest countries. While it waits for COVAX, the Pakistani government expects to receive a welcome gift of half a million doses of Chinese Sinopharm vaccine in coming days. A drop in the bucket for a population of more than 200 million. Even when the vaccine rolls out, convincing a skeptical public to take it may be an uphill battle. Why would I get vaccinated? There's no such thing as corona. It's a lie. Defeating the virus will also require fighting mistrust of government and the spread of disinformation. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. So much work to be done. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to the show. Let's check in on GameStop shares and where they're trading. It comes as Robinhood resumes trading in the stock, as you can see, up some 86%. Overnight, the trading app raised $1 billion from existing investors. And talking to Chris Cuomo last night, the app CEO ruled out interference by market makers when they decided to restrict trading in these stocks. I know that there's rumors around that, um, you know, we were directed by market makers or other market participants to do this. And I want to be 100 percent clear, this decision was not made on the direction of any market maker or uh, other market participants. Listening to that with us, Dave Fortnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, to say he's been vocal opponent of Robin Hood's actions is an understatement. But we like those. Dave, great to have you back with us. What angered you most about what happened yesterday? Well, I mean, they, they basically, the name of the company is Robin Hood, steal from the rich, give to the poor, and they did the exact opposite. They stole from the poor and gave back to the rich. I uh, unequivocally don't believe what he just said. Vlad, I think he's lying about that. Uh, there's just no rational explanation on why they would do what they did without outside pressure, interference. They had to know what they did was against all their clients. Their clients were the ones who were making money and they basically cratered the stock on purpose. So I, I, I just don't believe anything that guy says. I want to take a cold shower after seeing him say that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Robin Hood CEO is not here to defend himself and he has an open invite and long has to come on this show to, uh, to defend himself and talk about what happened. What if the share price had been falling, though, Dave, and people would have been losing money? Would you have been as angry? Well, I mean, that's the risk that traders do. And, and the stock market itself has triggers when there's unusual activity. It halts trading. But the, the people who invest in this stock weren't doing it with their eyes shut, they know there's risk. And I've asked this a lot. You know, I, how many times when the hedge funds are making millions of dollars, billions of dollars, there's an article that I saw Citadel make $6.7 billion on volatility of stock market. How often do they stop it and say, hold on? No, it never happens that way. This is the first time I can ever remember where you could only uh, sell a stock, you couldn't buy it. If they were that concerned, they should have froze it. And you can't sell or buy. And if people want to liquidate at the price they had the stock, that's fair. But to crater it, and again, I, in the history of the stock market, don't ever hear the rich guys, the institutional firms, the hedge funds saying, hold on, we're making too much money. You better protect us in case it goes the other way. This seemed like it was just the little guy was winning and the rules changed on the fly. 
Yeah, it seemed like panic. I think to everybody, it seemed like panic. They've clearly had to raise a lot of money as well to shore up their own position. They're like a young company, though, as well. And they've had this swarm of new investors coming onto the platform. I guess you could make the argument that they have to make sure that people have the money in their accounts to be able to buy these stocks. But Dave, I think you raise a good point. This stock's up a thousand percent year to date. Action should have been taken surely earlier and should have been communicated better. Yeah, and and I saw his interview on CNBC, Vlad, and this is a direct quote from him. He said it was not a liquidity issue, and he said it was to protect the people on Robinhood. That's garbage. How did that protect the people on Robinhood? I'd like to find one person on Robinhood who feels that they were protected. They literally intentionally cratered the stock, unless they're the dumbest people alive. If you only let people sell and you can't buy, pretty obvious what's going to happen to the stock. And that's exactly what it did. It cratered it. And then they relaxed the rules again. Robin Hood not here to defend themselves over what they were doing, whether it was to shore up their own position, the artificially created selling pressure, because that's clearly what we saw in the market. Um, I think to your point, you know, Dave, the access to these platforms is free. And part of the way they do that, the business model is they get all these orders from people and they they give them to a bigger company. This case, one of them is Citadel Securities. And you've mentioned the name, so I'm bringing it up. And, and they get paid for that. And that's also, I think, what's created this sort of stinky sense that perhaps information on their positions was being shared with one of these hedge funds, quite frankly, but that hedge fund says it's not. Um, Either you get democratization of finance and you get free access or perhaps you need to pay for it and you don't have those concerning relationships going on. What's the answer? Do you get charged for using this platform or should it remain free? I, I have no problem with it remaining free. I just, if you can't change the rules midstream is my bigger thing. And I, I did bring up Citadel, but it's well known that Citadel uh, and gave money to Melvin, who shorted GameStock. And then you have Citadel, who's involved with Robinhood. And there's a lot of very interesting things. But essentially, it appears from my point of view, that by cratering these stocks, they allowed these hedge funds to get out of their shorts. So that's what it looks like happened. And, you know, these people can go in front and, and say things that if you are logically thinking about what they're saying, Vlad and others, they don't make sense. They just don't. It seems like we're being fed lines. Um, and I just don't believe it. Dave, do you think the system's rigged? Yes, 100%. There's not a doubt in my mind that I think the system's rigged. Wall Street, I I think if you ask most Americans, they'd say, yeah, it's a dirty game. I said this yesterday. Julie, it takes a lot for uh, AOC and Donald Trump Jr. to be on the same side of an issue. (laughs) But they were yesterday. We haven't been able to agree on anything. And suddenly everybody's like, wait a minute, this stinks. I mean, you have to do something. Don't, don't forget yeah, Ted Cruz, because then AOC argued about the agreement, quite yeah. frankly. So you can, yeah, you can I mean, argue about, yeah, you know, it's good to get. And, and actually, I think, about, I think no, you sorry. represent. No, no, no. It's, I, I agree. I think you represent what's fueling this, the anger. I mean, the, the moniker um, Stop the Steal has been sort of refashioned for this, too. And I think lawmakers have to listen to that, too, as well as whatever you think is or isn't going on in the market. Dave, I could talk to you this for half an hour, but I want to talk about your fund. How are you doing? You've raised more money. Talk us through that quickly. Yeah. So I think you had me on when we were just getting it going. We're up over thirty three million dollars now raised. Wow. Continuing to raise over 200 businesses, 200,000 people. We're still making the calls every day, making a difference. And it's uh, 
it's been quite quite something. It really kind of took on a life of its own. So it, it has been gratifying. And again, if you're a small business, we're trying to just help them get through the pandemic. So um, if you need help, then reach out barstoolfund.com and we will continue to help as many small businesses as we can. And I didn't ask you this before, but I, I wanted to. You're going to keep these guys going. You're going to keep raising money, keep these businesses that you're helping going until we get through the pandemic. That's the promise that you've made. Correct. So it's not a one-time payment. If someone says we need 20000 a month for rent, payroll, whatever, we give it to them. Obviously, we do all the back check to make sure it's legitimate. And then each month we reach out on the anniversary of basically us giving the money and find out what their needs are, because every state's different and every regulation is different. And mostly small business owners, they don't want any more money than they need. They want to pay it forward, actually. So we continue to support until they can go back to running their successful business. Paying it forward. Dave, great to have you on. And um yeah, your Twitter feed isn't half amusing, so keep going. Whether I agree with you or disagree with you, it does keep me entertained. Dave Portnoy, founder of Barstool Sports. Thank you, sir. Great to have you on. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.